0: Aye, though we hunted high and low, and hunted everywhere, of the three men's fate we found no trace of any kind in any place, but a door ajar, and an untouched meal, and an over toppled chair. And as we listened in the gloom of that forsaken living room, a chill clutch on our breath, We thought how ill chance came to all who kept the Flannan light, And how the rock had been the death of many a likely lad, How six had come to a sudden end, and three had gone stark mad, And one whom we'd all known as friend had leapt from the lantern one still night, And fallen dead by the lighthouse wall, and long we thought, and the three we sought, and of what mighty befell. Thy curs, a glance has brought to heel, we listened flinching there, and looked and looked on the untouched meal and the overtoppled chair. We seemed to stand for an endless while, though still no word was said three men alive on Flannan Isle who thought on three men dead.
1: I'm Terence sticks welcome to Who's On Target.
0: Welcome to Doctor Who On Target. podcast where we discuss the target range of classic Doctor Who novelisations from the 1970s and 80s. Those long ago days where, if you missed Doctor Who on TV, you missed it forever. Unless, of course, you bought the target novelisation. So, join us. Jump aboard the TARDIS. Set the time rotor for late 20th century Earth and, with a wheezing groaning sound we'll discuss Doctor Who on Target. Hello and welcome to Doctor Who on Target. This is Greg in Swansea.
1: And this is David in Chelmsford.
0: And we're looking this week at... Well, it's an it's an absolute classic, I think. It's one I remember seeing from in childhood. Um, it's The Horror of Fang Rock. David, did you see this one on TV with this original transmission?
1: I did. It was originally transmitted in September 1977. Right. And I remember 1977 very, very clearly because it was the Queen's Silver Jubilee.
0: Oh, of course.
1: And we were, yes, we I, I suppose it was that summer. I would have looked up the actual date, but I, I do very clearly recall this story being on the telly. Um, When would that? I would have been nine at that time, I think. Yeah, well, that's... When me. It came out. Gosh, and I can still remember that far back. It's incredible.
0: <laughs> well, I certainly remember seeing this on TV. I, I, it didn't spring to mind that it was the... Uh, it was the Jubilee, but mm-hmm. now you've mentioned it at the street oh, yes, parties yes. and every, yeah. It's oh, all... yes,
1: we all frog marched down the road to go and wave. Oh, yes, absolutely. <laughs> well, I. I... The other and to have celebratory teas. I'm getting a bit sort of maudlin now, but um, <laughs> yes, that's, that's, that's a very clear memory, yes. being taken to the Methodist church hall which still stands actually it's very odd in this town because most things have been demolished if they're over eight years old really? so the next time i walk past i'm going to remember 1977 right. when the horror of fang rock came out That's a good and actually the target book came out very very hot on the heels because i did some research this time and i noted that the target book came out in march 1978 it did indeed so we're talking six months that is incredible yeah. now if we move
0: on from that, that's just prompted me to say, mm. I did feel, and I'm, I'm, I do not want to start this on a negative note, but this was mm. one of Terrence Dix's faster ones, wasn't it? You can see.
1: Well, it was because it had all sorts of history. Right. Apparently, the story that became State of Decay yeah. was going to be put at the beginning of this particular season, but then the Doctor Who production office had um, an instruction i suppose it would have been or a tip-off maybe but probably was um, an order actually that they couldn't have vampires in doctor who because there was a high budget production of dracula yes that was being made it was actually made by lewis marx who wrote mask of Mandragora*, a day of the daleks and i think a few others planet of giants actually oh, what a as was yeah. lewis marx and it starred Louis Jourdan, if yep. that's how you say it, who was the villain in Ocu- Octopusy, the Roger Moore, James Bond film from 1983. And it had Frank Fin, sorry, Frank Finley was in it as well. Yeah. And he was, uh, I don't know what we remember him from. He was in an episode of the original Blackadder, but uh, I think he was in Mutiny on the Bounty or something. But anyway, it was a very high profile production. It was coming out and... The reason for the speed of horror of Fang Rock is that they needed a fast replacement for this vampire script, and eventually that script, as I say, became state of decay.
0: Right, right. Now that's really interesting. I I, rem- I remember the Dracula production actually, because even mm. though I was um, uh, I was I was only must have been ten years old myself. Right, right. I was I was allowed to watch it. Um I, I used to love on Saturday night stay up with my sisters and watch um the Hammer horror films, you know, and uh mm. um uh, which used to absolutely terrify me, you know. <laughs> but um but summer nights watching those but and Doctor Who and of course now the horror of fang rock but state mm. of decay would have actually fitted perfectly into this gothic genre style that they were doing mm. at the time as well, wouldn't it?
1: Well it, it well it would have done. I mean this is a an important story historically because it's the first story to be produced by Graham Williams. Oh right. So yeah, Philip yeah. Hinchcliffe went out on a marvellous high oh. with the talons of Wang Chiang, didn't Absolutely he? Absolutely fabulous before. Yeah. yeah and Robert Holmes was still script editing at this time. I think he script edited the first three Graham Williams stories. And um, yes, yes. So in terms of being a milestone story, it is important in the chronology of Doctor Who. But as you say, it's also one of the faster written stories because it was an emergency. But then Terence Dix had some previous form when it came to... Writing emergency stories because the war games, Patrick Troughton's last story, was actually written to fill a massive 10 episode gap. Yes. And he wrote one with Malcolm Hulk very, very quickly. Yeah. And he could, you know, he could, he could, well, I mean, his stories will always have a marvellous structure. Yeah. He's all about structure. He's all about storytelling. Yeah. Yeah. Without wanting to get too far on a, soapbox. I feel that modern Doctor Who has perhaps become divorced from the basic rules of storytelling too much.
0: Yeah. Well it's interesting the, you mentioned that because there was yeah. a recent um uh interview with Terence Dix, a big interview in Doctor Who magazine. And right. he I don't know if you managed to read it, David, but he said that um Stephen Moffat, you know, he's a great friend of his. They're very close mm. friends and he's mm. often asked well he said he's always asking him to write a Doctor Who story. Mm. And mm. he said that he thinks Stephen Moffat is a fabulous writer, incredibly mm. talented, but he's not his sort of writer, he said. Right.
1: He, it could be because they have such diametrically opposed styles. I don't know. I've never really mm. wondered how Stephen Moffat goes about writing a story, but he's very, very successful at it. Oh, That's yes. beyond yeah. question. Yeah. But, I mean, what I would say without wishing to get onto that soapbox is that... Um, even when he's against the clock, Terence Dix still produces a marvellously structured story. Yes. And you I think it's quite a fondly remembered story with fans as well. I think they oh. like this one. Right. So he must have done something. He must have, you know, hit, pushed the correct buttons when, when he made this script, albeit... At breakneck speed. <laughs> I think, yes, I mean, I think we should talk actually for a, for a moment because when I started to think about horror of Fang Rock, I thought, well, this is just a, a classic Who base mm. under siege plot line and, and it's under siege by a single alien, yeah. but it's it's very much in that classic mould. But Terence Dix himself described the plot as being Agatha Christie oh. because you have a group of characters trapped in an enclosed space being bumped off one at a time absolutely i thought he's right this isn't a base under siege at all this is an agatha christie yeah he referenced um a particular agatha christie story which is now known as and then there were none
0: yes yeah
1: as as his um point of reference for this but um he also explained you, you you have the cliffhanger at the end of episode one when the shipwreck runs aground yeah he, he also explains that the the mariners on the ship are essentially just cannon fodder yeah. because he won't have a long enough story if it just attacks the lighthouse keepers yes but he, he also said as a regret about the story that he wished he'd integrated them better into the story and i oh. i had to think about that and we'll probably talk about their contribution to the story a bit more later Right. But we'll hold that thought. Could they have been better integrated? Well, they do become part of the plot simply by where they are. But we mustn't forget that um, that they're populating his Agatha Christie mystery.
0: Yes, yes. It's,
1: talk about that.
0: It's interesting, yeah, that you, you, you said that he said that they were canon fodder because... Um, yes. <laughs> yeah, yeah, because... It, yes they brought along you can see that you know but i i would also argue as as a plot device as well mm-hmm. if that is where when they are brought along that's when these other elements of the story which help deepen it uh, are mm-hmm. brought in you know the ones of greed um the thing- greed,
1: i think is something i do want to talk about right. today i think the other thing they they bring about is is um an exploration of class yes yeah, and probably how class probably goes out the window yeah. when you're being murdered one by one by a green blob. <laughs> because they, yeah. you know, despite the absurdity of the situation,
0: yeah,
1: there does seem to be a very definite policy on the part of the uh, shipwreck survivors to keep that rigid class structure in place. Oh yeah, they still they still expect the lower classes to do their bidding. Mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely, and and to, um, yeah, basically to to indulge them. Well,
0: there's a beautiful scene in it, actually, isn't there, where, um, I'm going to get the character's names wrong now, but... uh,
1: We'll we'll try and work it through together.
0: Yes, where he refuses to, um, is is it the captain of the ship? It's
1: Harker. Harker, isn't it? Harker. Yeah who will he jolly com- well take me to London tonight, my man? That's right. I'll yeah. Do that, sir. You know, it was, it was a wonderful. Yes, it's insubordination. Hang him from the mast arm. You know. Yes. Yeah. yeah it was yes. And, I know the story. Yes. Harker, is it Harker? I, I'm sure it's Harker. I've got it in front of me. I'm going to check that fact. Yeah, we've got. Uh, yeah, yes, it is. It's Harker. Harker. Yeah, we've got. Harker. We've got Colonel Stinsale. Yeah. And Lord Palmerdale. Lord yes. Palmerdale is the crooked Lord from the House of Lords. Yes. And Skinsale is the blackmailable army man, isn't yes. he, as well. And they they are absolutely critical to keep the plot going, as because just killing the lighthouse crew isn't going to sustain four episodes of Doctor Who. No. E- e- even even if you do bring them back from the dead, <laughs> they're
0: still not going to... Uh...
1: Well that's another that's another that is another structural error within the story that i i i found actually because we know that Without giving too much away, because I'm sure everybody knows, and I've probably said it already, but the villain of the piece is a Rutan.
0: Yes, and he's
1: made of Rutan because the Rutans have been mentioned in a story called Time Warrior. Yes, are you still engaged in that interminable war with the Rutans? He says to Lynx. Looks says to Lynx, or something along those lines. Yeah, yeah. Sticks decides to use that name. Yeah. But anyway, no, it's um.
0: Well, it's another Robert Holmes creation, isn't it? Robert Holmes. Absolutely. Yes. Yeah.
1: I, and, but there's a the whole point of the Rutan is that he's a shapeshifter.
0: Yeah.
1: In fact, in the book, he explains that he's an advanced Rutan who's learnt to shapeshift. Yes. Oh. Not capable of it, but this one has special powers. Right. And um, there, there's a bit in the book and on the television where you know that Ruben, the old the grand old man of the lighthouse yeah. has been the Rutan has shapeshifted into Ruben But there also there's a scene in very close proximity where Ruben's in the room or, or the Rutan Rutin the room Ruben Routen the is in the room and then <laughs> the glob comes up the side of the lighthouse. Yes. You yeah. think well, they can't be in two places at once. So the character must have demorphed into its original form, gone out the window Slipped up the side of the lighthouse, killed Lord Palmerdale, come back down, oh. back through the window, and uh, reformed into into its into its um Reuben shape. No, I'd you never think,
0: noticed that. Why
1: on earth a, a creature that could shin up the lighthouse so easily would be drawn into using the stairs, yeah. where it's vulnerable. I don't know, because it seems the minute it's it's sort of lumbering up that staircase, yeah. it puts itself at a huge disadvantage. Yeah, yeah. I should have just hopped over the top of the lighthouse and met them up there. <laughs>
0: <I don't laughs> Do you know, it, it, that is absolutely true. And I wonder, does Tarrant Sticks try to counteract that? Isn't there a line in there where he says, there's no hurry because he knows there's nothing they can get away from at the top of the lighthouse. Oh,
1: I suppose so. But the top yeah. of a staircase is very defensible, yeah. as it proved to be the case.
0: Yeah, it is, isn't it? And it was classic. It's
1: a strategic yeah. error on the part of the Routon, but wholly necessary to resolve the plot, because if <laughs> the thing had being unkillable, yeah. the plot would still be going. Yes. So there that's we go. That's that did really confuse good me. when confuse me. When is he, he Reuben? When is he the Glob? How does he get between the two states so easily? And why does he use that staircase? Yeah. <laughs> it made no sense to me. I suppose because he had to. Because yes, it, yes. Made, it made him vulnerable.
0: And you're but, in a late house. You've got to use the staircase. It's, well,
1: it's, it's, i tell you something else yeah. that was hugely, hugely convenient. Yeah. And that's at this route and should alight in a place that already has its own legend about a marauding monster. <laughs> I mean, how convenient was that? Well, that's... It gives rise, yeah, you could have a prequel. Well... Somebody needs to write The Beast of Fang Rock, probably (laughs) finish, maybe Stephen Moffat, I don't know. Yes. But you could actually write a prequel that would explain how the original Three Lighthouse Keepers came to their sticky end. Yeah, It's, It's hugely convenient that it had a Beast legend it is very very
0: convenient and also um
1: going for explanation somebody i'm really surprised one of the fan authors hasn't taken it on or perhaps they have i just haven't noticed well no
0: i think it's a really interesting idea actually to go in that i mean it could uh uh, it could certainly be a prequel or something which could uh, Mm because to be honest yes those mistakes in the plotting are there but I I could easily listen to another Fang Rock, you know, watch another Fang mm-hmm. Rock. Uh, with a with another one is because what what I I did, I it's got a real affection in my heart. This I remember watching mm-hmm. it as a child and um, just absolutely loving everything about it and and listening to the new audiobook version again, reading the Target book again. It's just steeped in that victoriana um mm-hmm. you know these mm-hmm. these class distinctions as you say of the time and mm-hmm. it's just everything the language the atmosphere mm-hmm. it's all so um it's so in in, in intoxicating and in it's mm-hmm. it, you know it's actual you know like you say with, with the agatha christie story and mm-hmm. you expect something from that don't you and I think Terence, he, as you said earlier, he wrote this um, on the spirit of a moment as as an emergency. But mm. there's everything in there. I don't think he should be feeling he didn't do a good enough job. By, no, by, no. I
1: don't, think, I don't think he would feel that. But I don't know if you've ever read an Agatha Christie book or seen an Agatha Christie play. But one thing that we can say about Agatha Christie's writing yeah. is that there's a lot of words in it. It's oh. very dense. All of her dialogue is incredibly dense and complicated. Really? I've, never read, I've never whereas, read... Yeah. Whereas Terence is absolutely the master of concise storytelling. Oh, he is, isn't he? And this book only runs for three discs, doesn't it? It's is, over three hours. Well, that's
0: one of the things that struck me, because we, where we've just come away from doing a, a, a 10 disc um i mean it wasn't a target book to be fair i know
1: it was a real workout down the listening gym it, it was doing <laughs> the pirate planet it was indeed. we've gone from we've gone from a 10 disc epic yeah to three wonderfully evocative immediate episodes of doctor who yeah. Well, well, a Doctor Who story that's told over just three discs, over three hours. Yeah, yeah. But I don't I... think it actually suffers as no. a result of the brevity with which Terence Dix tells the tale because he actually fleshes. The television tale out rather well
0: he does um one thing which I, I really like about the novelization as well was you've got this um this prequel and it's, mm. not, it's not an epilogue really well it is a bit of an epilogue really isn't it about mm. when he mm. talks the, the about the poem the poem yes which mm. when you were talking about um the original what it's a bit of a convenience at the mo- the route and lands on one with the monster legend mm. i thought and it's also interesting isn't it that the Doctor knows it. You know, he knows this poem. Oh, yes. Yes, yeah. he does. Yeah. And he's saying, but of course, having knowledge of the poem d- doesn't help him in his... in his. Um, no, battle. it does help him. Yeah. But he but he never, he waited right till the end to tell everybody. I, I just liked it anyway. I just thought... I it, think
1: it's a, a wonderful, I think it's wonderful when a Doctor Who story is moored in a piece of actual literature yes. i'm assuming the poem is real yes yeah. it, it was written at the turn of that century yeah. sorry anyway, actually. So, well no no century because it's 1902 this story is set in isn't it
0: yes, yes. So it is
1: deliberately wedded to that period and it is a good as you said it is a good um capture of that period or how we think it might be Yes. With it's heavy class distinctions.
0: Yeah, yeah. Uh,
1: less of your lip, my man, as I say, not as I do. All oh. this sort of do my bidding, do as I say, the, stuff that goes on. And, and uh, a tiny, tiny victory for the proletariat insofar as Harker doesn't do the bidding as requested. Yes. And he makes a stand for the working man.
0: He does. He does we're, make we're a stand. Peeling
1: seat. off layers that probably have never been... <laughs> <laughs> Explored before, but I'm sure they have actually. I'm sure well,
0: they have. I, I think um, you know, we we. I think this is one of those stories where you have you have. I think everything you you could possibly want in a Doctor Who story. Mm-hmm. I mean, there's mm-hmm. there's as I say, there's this lovely evocation of this, um, le, you mm-hmm. know, lighthouse. I was about to say legendary, mm-hmm. but you know, a, a lighthouse island mm-hmm. with a legend of a of a monster on it we mm-hmm. have it, it is it is a base under stage scenario i think like you said mm-hmm. isn't it but really as you said it's more of a um an agatha christie um how was that described you know that the people are being killed off one by one mm-hmm. but it's that scenario where
1: you can't escape
0: um no when, once you're well, on
1: that's right that the and then there were none is set on an island deliberately isn't it It and the other thing that um i think terence dix did particularly well or that i particularly appreciated is that he did add some explanation to things that weren't properly explained on the television you know not only does he do that um prologue that you've explained which says that the Ireland is very very small and looks like fangs yes
0: that's
1: the name which i quite like but there's also a scene in it where um vince takes the bribe to send the message to the broker in london yes it's more you know it's, it's, it's as if um um, it's Lord Palmadale, isn't it? It's sort of how you'd expect a member of the Bulletin Club to behave. Uh, yes. But, you, know, you know. That's uh, perfect, it, isn't it? That and is. he um, basically instructs him, bribes him, gives him all this money. And on the television, he just burns it for no apparent reason. But Terence Dix is very clear in the book that he burns the money because he believes Lord Palmadale having just... Been murdered. He believes that if he's found with the money, he will get the blame. So there's a whole exploration of conscience going on in the book. Yes, a whole internal dialogue to do with why he does what he does. Yeah, the fact that he can't. You know, he has his prize. He can't resist temptation, but ultimately he knows what he's done is wrong and he fears consequences yes of what he's done yeah. and i thought it was rather lovely really the yeah. fact that terence had gone to the trouble to actually put that internal dialogue in there and especially in such a short book yeah to, yeah. to actually tie off those ends that don't really make a lot of sense on the televised version well, sure, he does a couple of other times as well. Actually, oh, and... I think there are several pieces in
0: there. Yes, mm. I, I mean one of the interesting ones we're looking at um, the Victorian ideas of class and um, your place mm. in society and money and so forth. And uh, I mean they, they they make a big thing of um, uh, if the light is on of do they say that he's going to sue? Well, he's going to be. Oh like,
1: yes, you know, yes, the litigious society in which. That, he says yes. Yeah, he's going to, You're going to never, be. Never mind. Never mind. You know, having a go at me about me. You know, the way I made you sail the boat. Yes. That it wasn't on. So there's there's someone else to blame, isn't there? It's blame culture.
0: Yes. Yes. Yeah. It's really that, interesting.
1: You're having words about that when we get back. Yeah, that's it. As you know, it's... blame someone else. Don't blame your own shortcomings as a human being. That's blame it. Blame the little man. And this um
0: exactly blame the little man again and it's um it's lovely isn't it to see that um as you said Terence has put these little um i was going to say flourish but that's um too deprecating it's not flourish it's little no, added it's, it's, depths, isn't
1: it yes it's it's it flourish perhaps not but certainly detail yes yeah detail it's details.
0: detail
1: isn't it it's yeah. he's he's added he 's added something in there that that makes a lot more sense his attention to detail yes and and it's to do with the structure of his story and the fact that he wants to tie everything off yes yeah, and he also does something else, which I think is rather clever because i do I've mentioned Lord palmerdale and his yeah. shortcomings a couple of times, yeah. but to me, the far more interesting character. Is Colonel Skinsale.
0: Right, right.
1: Did you make any have any particular view on that character?
0: Well, yes. I thought um, he was a very he was a very interesting character. Again, he very much came across as a, a character of the period. Mm-hmm. But I liked some of the ways that, uh, for example, wasn't 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 he the one who was laughing at the insubordination from the captain.
1: Yes, he was the one who said, hang him from the yard arm. That's
0: right, yes. yes and he he was. was relishing that, wasn't he? He was <laughs> relishing. And I thought, is that showing? Because obviously he's, uh, you know, he's in the pay of, uh, um, you know, the Lord. And he's...
1: Lord Palmerdale quite... has a a hold over him, that's true. Yes,
0: absolutely. And I I loved the way that he relished that those moments were there. Mm-hmm. I... I he gave me the impression of um somebody who' would made his way up in society from somewhere you know i don't know did he did he come across that as you
1: well he's certainly um he's certainly a flawed human being, I yeah. think we can say that about him yes he certainly yeah. you know he's this avaricious capitalist
0: yeah yeah who has
1: to have a diamond fixation <laughs>
0: oh yes yes but okay. i
1: think i think you you know actually when the diamonds Came into the story, and the diamonds are critical yes. for t- two reasons, particularly to do with skin cells' demise. But I thought of that scene, and and this is going to be completely left field. I thought of the scene at the end of Marathon Man. Oh, yes. When Laurence Olivier, is it Dr. Shell? That's right. Anyway, yeah. whoever he is, he's playing the Nazi. And he, he has this, and I found this horrifying yeah. when I saw the film as a youngster, yeah. he has this blade that comes out of his sleeve oh, and he's yes. going to stab Dustin Hoffman. Yes. And Dustin Hoffman opens the case with the diamonds. Yes. The case, and it's, this fight is happening on this raw iron staircase, it seems to me, unless yeah. I've misremembered it, and the diamonds yeah. pour out of the staircase. They go down the, the stairs and Laurence Olivier forgets his desire to stab Dustin Hoffman and start scrabbling for diamonds. Yes, yes, and I thought this is skin sale. Yeah, a year yeah. later. That's
0: a really interesting yeah. comparison, actually, because yes, yeah, you...
1: shows how you can put an, an adversary off if you start tipping diamonds. Near <laughs> them. and I thought, well, yeah. that but that's why the character is so clever because Terence Dix makes him a good egg, but only for a little while. Yes, because he he helps prepare the weapons to repel the Routon. And he even insists upon accompanying the Doctor when they recover the diamonds from the late Lord Palmerdale. Yes, yeah. And I, I must say, and I don't know if, if this struck you, but I found myself questioning the Doctor's Code of Conduct right. because he throws the surplus diamonds onto the stairs. He does. And he, he does. must know what's going to happen. Uh, and I felt, well, he's had a bit of a... He's had a... Well... It's not an argument, but he's made very clear previously in the story that he blames Skin Cell for imperiling everyone by destroying the equipment that would allow the lighthouse to signal its distress to the shore. He did, So I thought, you know, I thought he's almost testing it. He's almost inviting him to undo himself. Yeah. And I had to question the doctor's ethics a bit there because he threw the diamonds. And in Laurence Olivier style yeah skin cell dropped to his knees and started chasing them down the staircase and probably right. got electrocuted for his troubles
0: yeah that's really interesting. i didn't I didn't actually pick up on that uh but now he creates you, you the
1: situation where skinale's greed destroys him yes, yeah, that's perhaps I've read too much into it, but I thought it was rather cruel, yeah, no,
0: I don't think you've read too much into it no you know you've made, i mean that is exactly what happens um and I think I'd, you surmised it there perfectly, but I wonder. Um, is that one of those moments where, over the years in Doctor Who, we we have these little touches where we went? I mean, David Tennant did that one where he punished those. Um, oh, he
1: did. Yes, that brilliant story by Paul Cornell, wasn't it? Yes, yes. The one red balloon in it. That's right, and we had um, scarecrows. That's the one.
0: Yes, yeah. Where he um, was human
1: it, nature hum, is it? Human, human nature, nature, family, family of blood. Of blood. Yes. Yeah, and, I I I still look upon that as being. An absolute high point for new who. Oh, I love that story. Me too. When I saw that, I was right. The doctor, the doctor in that, he says, "I realised the doctor wasn't being cruel; he was being merciful, oh, because me he really. turned himself into a human being, yes. so the family of blood wouldn't find them, and it would be unnecessary to punish them." But they find <sighs> him, and so he does. Yes. It's an
0: extraordinary good... story. I love it. Oh, um, me too. The the depths in that story are fabulous, aren't they? It's really, but you could see that these sorts of things spring from these other stories. Mm. I mean, I, I all. It's interesting when you were saying earlier about Terence dicks uh, putting in them, the, the the moral dilemmas of these characters, and that mm. because I very much feel reading these Target books and watching Doctor Who in the seventies informed my morality and ethics a a great deal as as much as i think charles dickens and uh you know other you know great works that i read i understand
1: Uh, what you're saying they're didactic aren't they you learn something from them
0: yes i i felt so and i do feel that um even today i mean obviously we'll get the odd things you know which we'll think oh i don't know if that's quite right in this day and age but Mm -hmm. um but by and large um there's a lot of the eth- you know the the ethical stances mm-hmm. and uh, you know views towards what is humanity contained within mm. these books which mm. i still think i i hold i still hold as being right today
1: right yeah, yes
0: you know as you were saying about the the, the greed that's shown in this the you mm. know the the disdain for for human life which is lower than the class which you believe yourself to mm-hmm. be and uh, these uh, and i think it's it's reflected so well within this but it's mm-hmm. done deftly it's de- it's not shoved in your face and oh say, it's not
1: yes you know yeah i yeah. mean i haven't read an awful lot of dickens but it can be subtle as a brick comment. Oh, yeah. <laughs>
0: <laughs> or you you know if there's if there's a moral point to be made in dickens he's gonna oh make,
1: he'll make it he'll make, make it yeah <laughs> pages you know and i book. Which is not to deny his genius, because oh, yeah. obviously he was. Yes, yeah. I I, I adore Dickens, you know. But,
0: um, but you know, I, I agree with you entirely, you know. Sometimes it can get a bit too much. But with this story, Horror mm. of Fang Rock, I just feel it's got everything. I love even the chapter titles, you know. Mm. They're, they're great, aren't they? They're just so they boys' own adventure, but, mm. you know, brought up to date to the, to, to mm. the late 70s. And... Mm. Um, some of the other things, you know, even if you think you touch on, I remember, you now the character of Leela, um, mm. played by mm. Louise Jameson, of course, mm. and um, I remember at the time seeing her as
1: I love
0: her acting in this. I think she's, yeah. she, she's fabulous, isn't she? Yes,
1: yeah, she is indeed. And she's very good in this.
0: Yeah, yeah, and I remember, I can remember watching it on air at the time and mm. about the way she was shoveling the coal into the boiler to keep the electricity going. Mm -hmm. And it was really awkward. She was aware she didn't know how to use a shovel, what this thing is. for? I remember seeing her at a convention years later and um, that was mentioned because she said she always tried to put things in to show um, Mm. that she was an alien. So she thought, how can I do this? And uh, it was in the script, but she thought, well, I'll do it left-handed. She's not left-handed, but if right. I do it left-handed, it'll look like I don't know what I'm doing. I, I this uh, is new to me, yeah. And I thought, well, that obviously worked because even all those years ago as a child, I remember thinking, you know, she doesn't know how to do that. She's not, But right. not as a big uh, thing, you know. It wasn't made a big play no. of. It was just a subtle little thing. I, I, I love yes. that and yeah. also the other thing i i love to see in it which um is touching on victorian morality and attitudes and mores i think is the the, the, the bit i think it was, it's really funny where Leela wants a change of clothes because she's soaking oh, wet yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Did you, did you like that bit, David? Is well, it?
1: yes, because she gets something from Vince's wardrobe. She does. from Which Vince's... on the television miraculously fits her perfectly. <laughs> it does, doesn't it? Yeah, even though he's, <laughs> he's a big strapping lad. He's a big lad. and, <laughs> and uh, it, it still works. Yeah, yeah. I think, but... Yes, yes. No, I, I do. I do know the scene that you're referring uh, to. And it's quite I mean, nice. I think it's... Sorry. Go on, go on, Dave. I was going to say, I think it's quite appropriate that you've brought up the topic of Louise Jameson, who is, of course, the reader yes. of *Horror of Fang Rock*. Do you, do you want to give some feedback on the performance she gives across the story? Yeah, well, this is the first. I don't believe she's done.
0: And is this the first one? That I released? think
1: she did for, uh, *Face of Evil*. Oh, did she? I haven't heard. Is that, that one, one being released? I I know. I know that there was a an audio book of it for the um, RNIB, uh, the Blind Charity, and I think it may well be out on target. I'm not sure, but uh, I'm pretty sure I'm right saying she read that one. But no, this is certainly my first experience of her as a reader, and I just wondered if you wanted to do a couple of minutes on that yeah absolutely because of course we we we, i
0: mean really we go for the target audio versions the new ones that that are coming out now from the bbc and i i will say first of all i was a little unsure Mm -hmm. she seemed to me to be a little bit unsure of herself in her reading i felt when it started um now, as it wore on, uh, sorry as it, as it wore on, I felt she inhabited the role of narrator of this story oh, she much... grew into it Yes, yeah, she grew into it, and I, I feel there was one element with um Tom Baker's uh, voice where I thought that's interesting because her i don't think she's not trying to impersonate him, but her no. her perception of what Tom Baker's voice is very different to what my perception of Tom Baker's yes. voice is. And Yes,
1: I understand that.
0: Yeah. Even the inflections, the the, the rhythms of Tom's voice are very different. Like they're this story is full of very very famous lines. I mean, you you've said about three or four of them, David, already. You know, well,
1: so. badly, yes.
0: No, no, no. <laughs> said really well. And um, <laughs> you know, you said, for example, um, I noticed earlier. I chuckled. Reuben the Rutan, you know. Reuben, R- yes, yeah, yeah, which is it's, it's a lovely little rolling yeah. rhymy uh, little little phrase. And mm-hmm. the doctor in the TV series, Tom Baker says it you know beautifully doesn't he you know mixing it. yeah and
1: he's sort of putting it, him down a bit is, and he's got that other tongue twister about the early shimerly
0: oh yes the. You early remember Sh-
1: that one and it's a red pipe or something <laughs> that's right the early Sh- <laughs> and it was almost I, I don't know who is responsible for the uh, line in the show but it makes the book but you're right he yeah. does have it must be very daunting to even attempt to pick up on tom baker's speech patterns because unless you're john coleshaw yes who just inhabits the character yes it must be quite quite a challenge and i think like you i think i felt i needed to acclimatize to louise jameson's delivery but that's not knocking or putting her down as a reader at all i think it's as you said, I think there may have been a, an adjustment period, and she she either grew into the story, or I grew into her telling of the story. Yeah, which which
0: either way, I think definitely by disc two, I was very happily enjoying her mm. her narration. I think, mm-hmm. um, like I say, when whenever Tom came in, I mean, being a bit unfair in the sense that mm. she was trying to give Tom a booming, powerful voice, but I right. thought that doesn't sound like Tom to me oh. at all, you know, it's not. And I don't mean that she couldn't do the impression, you know, that's, that's
1: not... No, I think th- it would be unreasonable to expect an impression.
0: Absolutely, absolutely. But I just felt, I mean, there's one line that I wrote down here where mm. um it says, uh, there's a lovely little one of the jokey lines, which I think he's he's taken from one of his earlier stories. I think the brigadier said something similar to this, where right. they, they land in the TARDIS and she says this, this Doesn't this? You said you'd take me to Brighton, and he says, mm. uh, Tom Baker says, Does this look like Brighton? It doesn't <laughs> even look like Hove, and I think, which is a lovely, um, little line there,
1: but and then he goes on to say, Possibly Worthing,
0: <laughs> it's great to say, but I don't know whether that is ingrained in me. It's done so beautifully by Tom in the actual TV series that when I read. The target novelization. I can just hear him saying it, but when it's, Louise, yes. yeah, did you get this? When Louise said it, it was like, oh, that that isn't my understanding of how that's right. meant to sound.
1: Did you feel that, David? Or? Well, it's it's yeah. tricky, isn't it? Because when you see, I don't know if if you go to the theatre as often as I do, but I, I, go I to don't the go. Theater, I'd
0: love to go as often. As I go you, to the
1: theatre yeah. an awful lot, you and do. I sometimes see different productions of the same play right and there are certain plays which i'm afraid i'm so sad i've seen so many times i sort of hum along with them things like <laughs> have and every time a new actor interprets a role i think well that's not how the last bloke said it yeah. and, I, and i start to get very prickly but then i realize it's absolutely right and proper that the new performer seeks to put their own stamp on it yes. but you're right it's very hard to blot out if you are used to to an actor's attack, for want of a better word, or speech pattern or rhythm, which is a word you use, which is very good, it does become almost as if you think that that is definitive. Yes. And you think that's how it has to be said, hereafter, forever. Yes. And I I totally sympathise, and I totally understand where you're coming from, because I suffer, perhaps not in the context of Doctor Who, but certainly when I see plays, and, and I've seen them before... Yeah. or i know speeches from plays or i know the dialogue i think oh why isn't that person saying it as i'd say it yes well, that's yeah. obvious because <laughs> yeah i haven't said it publicly but um it's it's difficult it is difficult to accept but i i do think as i say i do think she gives a good performance yes in, in the role of narrator and and as you say i think i i warmed to her as the story went on and by disc too, like you i was totally accepting her and the delineation between most of the characters is very good yes but sometimes struggled to realize that the doctor was speaking
0: yes yeah that that's that's very nicely put actually because that yeah, i thought that even some of the ones i mean when she started doing the lighthouse keepers, um i thought mm-hmm. oh standard standard mucal um, accent you know being used yeah because it just tends to be the standard one i'm I, I i don't she's louise jameson is a fabulous actor and uh i i think you know she's very very talented but mm. i did feel she was doing the standard accent there for pretty much all of them but it's mm. pl-
1: it's plausible they could it, it is could, plausible yeah yeah and you know at least she hasn't we were quite critical of Richard Franklin. Oh, she no, she's no Richard Franklin. When she, yeah. she absolutely, when he absolutely hammered stereotypes onto oh. certain characters, she doesn't do any of that nonsense. Absolutely not. Which I no. think is very much to her credit. Absolutely yes, yeah. No,
0: I, I, I feel you're absolutely right with that. She doesn't do anything like Richard Franklin did, and she's doing a standard act. But it seems. She's comfortable with that. It works. Mm. It's plausible, as work. I say, and um, she's doing it. And that—that's that's absolutely fine. You know, like you said, mm. um, you know, the the delineation between the characters, you said, wasn't it? You know, is is clear. Mm. It's there. Um, I don't know if she. I don't know if she attempted it to the same degree with like Lord Palmer'sdale, for example. Right. She wasn't. She wasn't giving him a sort of standard accent, was she?
1: No, no. They, they they were just upper class, lower class, weren't they? Yes, yes. Distinction. Yeah, yeah. But luckily, people are killed at such a rate <laughs> that if you haven't picked up on, on the voice, they won't last a lot longer, so you won't even have to <laughs> worry right. about it to the end of the book. They'll have gone. The,
0: the, the other thing I, <laughs> I, I loved, um, what she did as well, um, it was quite interesting, because when she was doing her, but she didn't lapse into Leela, did she?
1: Did, do, you, do you think she didn't? Oh, is it just I, me? I thought she delivered Leela's lines very, in a very Leela Lee way. Oh, that's right. A word, and if that oh. isn't a word, it should be Leela Lee. Yeah, that's very
0: nice, actually, Leela Lee. Yeah. Oh, I, I didn't. I, I had the impression that she was. Um, oh, there we are. I've contradicted myself. I haven't said that. I've got a note here saying
1: mm.
0: it was just like going back in time when she said it was. It, the tesh. Yeah. I like.
1: Right. I liked it when she said, "Keep the boy pressure up. Keep the boy oh, pressure. Oh yes. Keep the boy, the doctor says keep the boy pressure up. All right, the boiler. Yeah. That's <laughs> What I said. <laughs> so she, she. I thought that was. Hundred percent, Leela. Yeah,
0: you're absolutely right. Being yes.
1: corrected and and pretending it was all okay. I thought there was a lovely little character moment. Yes, yeah, there was actually. There was, and the other one
0: I said with the with the Tesh when she said, "I'm not a Tesh. I'm not
1: a technician."
0: That's right. yeah. And that's beautiful. I love. I love Leela's character, and I love Louise Jameson. And it quite hurts me to say that. I I didn't. I thought she was. Um, it took her a while to get into the flow of it mm-hmm. because um I hate to say anything <laughs> about because she's just fabulous. She's a, she's a fabulous... And I remember seeing her at um, that convention I talked about earlier where she talked about um they took... Because everybody, of course, and when you think of Sarah Jane and K-9, you amalgamate the two as if they are what was originally in Doctor Who. Right. But she said... I, she was really hurt by the fact that it's become a big success and all of this. And she said, "He's my canine." She said
1: they took my canine and gave oh, him to someone. Oh, that's awful. Yeah. But I tell you something rather yeah. nice that happened. Do You yeah. remember when we went to the BFI last November? It was now, wasn't it? Oh yes. For the, well, the several dance. years before that, yeah. In fiftieth anniversary year of Doctor Who... Yeah. They had a story of each Doctor. And although I can't remember exactly which story represented Tom Baker, I'm sure I could find out. Right. One thing I can say is that in the auditorium, they gave her seat K-9. Oh, did they? Which I thought was a lovely gesture. That is lovely. So That's her really... ticket for this, this event said K-9.
0: Oh, that is fabulous. I love that. Yeah, because of course... As soon as you think about it, you know, it is, it's her canine, it's hers, yeah, yeah, it's just, it's just madness. We, how, how did it even get assigned to another car? Well, there's a story there, isn't it? It was, it was, that, that was John Nathan Turner, wasn't it? To make,
1: yes, the, it got, yes, it came through the post or something, yeah, I yeah, think, something
0: like that, yeah. It was,
1: uh, <laughs> but, I mean, Canine and Company itself was, well, it was. It didn't have any legs as a series, did it? it no. came no. off very quickly, but it was actually written by Terence Dudley, who wrote or produced Doomwatch, oh. which was a very significant piece of 70s yeah. television. Yeah. So, as if it didn't have pedigree,
0: it should have been fabulous written by him. It would have been fabulous. Yeah. I mean, but then, the, I that, mean,
1: Terence Dudley's stories for the Fifth Doctor are always regarded as the weaker ones, aren't they? Yeah. Things like Black Orchid, and he did King's Demons as well. Yes, may have done some others, for all I, I know. I wonder
0: why, you know, he wrote those fabulous um, Doomwatch ones, and then mm. the Doctor who went. I wonder if but could... he
1: obviously was a yes, a producer of experience and standing to have got that gig because. Yeah people still remember that series very fondly and I'm sure they remember Terence Dudley's contribution to television very fondly. But perhaps we should gloss over the fact that he gave us Canine and Company. Yes,
0: yeah, there was um, (laughs) this one to... uh... I've got the DVD, but I wouldn't have bought it if it wasn't part of a set. I don't yeah, think it was there. with the Invisible
1: Enemy, wasn't well, it? Well, yeah, I mean, you've got to have they the Invisible Enemy. They've obligated you. Yeah,
0: absolutely.
1: They, 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 got, they, I know, think they know how to sell them, don't they? They, they do know how to <laughs> sell stuff to you, yeah. Um, I think, I'm, pulling us back to yes. Horror of Rock just briefly, I think yes. I'm going to say one of my other plot niggles to right. see if you picked it up as well. OK. Because when the Doctor confronts the Rutan the Rutan's dialogue has it regard the Doctor very definitely as a human being. And I don't mm. see how it, it could. I think um, I think this contributed to its downfall. Right. I think it grossly underestimated him because anybody coming to the Lighthouse with knowledge of the rutan Taran War should obviously have been non-human.
0: Yes, yes.
1: Didn't, well, I didn't quite understand that bit. I have yeah, to say. Yeah, yeah.
0: I... I, I, I I will say I think the last part of that with the router I mean the router was was merely a plot, plot device really wasn't he and I think um as you, when you do get these um are they called MacGuffins? is that what
1: Well Paul Cornell calls them MacGuffins on the um on the uh, DVD of yeah. horror on rock certainly a MacGuffin was I think something that Alfred Hitchcock described as a device that resolves a plot. You are absolutely right. I watched the Hitchcock um Truffaut DVD and bought the
0: book a few weeks ago. So yeah, sorry David, I misascribed that it. You are absolutely right. It's Hitchcock, isn't it? He Hitchcock. Yeah, Hitchcock and made that up where he said there is something which is inconsequential, isn't it? It's just there mm. to to sort of trick you into thinking this so when it's mm. it's not about that. It's about you know the characters between two people or the whatever you know it's just there to to illustrate mm-hmm. it or to to allow it to happen i suppose isn't it and, yeah. mm. and i think I,
1: mm. sorry go on david no 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 i was gonna say now we've meandered onto the subject no paul cornell there is a very very good documentary about terence Dix. well it's not really a documentary i suppose it's a more of a tribute. But um, it's well worth a watch if anyone's got the DVD. And
0: oh, how would we get all of that? Is that um, available? Oh, it's on. It's
1: a DVD extra. It's oh. on. It's on the disc. Right. right. And that has um, Paul Cornell, who of course wrote *Family of Blood*, as we said earlier, right. talking about his admiration for Terence Dix and and you know the structure. Right. Which I think we're all very aware of with the Terence Stick script. Yes, yes. And as you say, the MacGuffins are mentioned. Yeah, yeah. The diamonds are a MacGuffin, and the lighthouse beam is a MacGuffin, and something else is a MacGuffin. <laughs>
0: I love I love that the Brilliant. fact that they use the lighthouse and Leela is described as the one. I mean, the doctor turns around and says, you know, you're so clever or what, whatever he says to her because she she gives the idea of um, the lighthouse. Using being,
1: it as a laser as a right. laser, it's yes, a laser, don't they? Because he says about a Just laser. Need, because he says, oh, oh, how about my cufflinks? too small but it happened to be happens to be a bag of diamonds on the corpse down the stairs okay we'll go get them and that resolves that uh, not only sees off skin sale as we said because yes. he's undone by his own greed and yeah so it should be because i think i described him well he's um well he's a he's a capitalist he's, he's very mm. much uh Philip Green of the story, isn't oh, he? Oh, yeah, that's a the nice thing description. bad about it. Yeah, yeah I, yeah. I actually called it... I actually described him as Lawrence Olivier. Oh. As the Nazi oh, doctor.
0: Oh, no. That, no, describe
1: <laughs> him as the Nazi doctor, um, but not as
0: Laurence Olivier. <laughs> well, but I think,
1: yeah, no, I, I was saying that particularly in relation to his diamond fixation. Yes. But, yes, yes. the diamonds are critical to resolve the plot. Yeah. Motivate is about that.
0: And I would say, you know, just... Sort of to round the whole thing up. It's just a great old romp of a story as well, isn't it? It's got it's got it pace, it's got um horror. I love those Victor... you know when New Doctor Who came back and mm-hmm. everybody seemed to say when um uh when the third episode what's it called? The Unquiet oh, Dead The, the
1: Mark, Unquiet Dead, yeah. By Mark well, Gatiss, yeah, when that one
0: came in. It was Yeah. Yes, that's it. Everybody felt doctor who is back really with that one didn't they i think uh well, a lot of people felt that you know that it was yes that.
1: no it was a particularly good episode i it, think it
0: was yeah and you know mark it's his love of words we can see them mm. in here can't we with mm. the um, um obviously it's not mark is 10 and 6 but we can see those little ones like you said that early shmurly and we've got the, the shmurly, yeah the, yeah, the <laughs> little tank to. It. but what i loved as well were these period um phrases um when he said, for example, that he's going to get make a shroud for Ben, isn't
1: it? Oh know? yes, yes, he yes. Well, again, that is to do with the code of conduct within that class, isn't it? Yes. The fact that he doesn't, he feels that he would be letting Ben down yeah. if he leaves him on display. It's dignity, isn't it's, it? It's rather touching, really. You it is. Think it it's because, lovely. Yes, it is. And, and I, it's interesting That's that you mentioned. Sorry, Con David. I uh, know. I was just saying I'd forgotten all about Ben and his shroud.
0: Yeah, yeah. It, it's interesting that you mention it and you talk about, you know, it again. It's relating to class and the, the dignity mm-hmm. and what the the cultural norm would be within that. Because it's also touching on the fact that when he comes back and um, we have that lovely phrase. Um, is it? Is it Vince who shouts out? He's walking. He's walking. Which is that? The flight? dead
1: don't walk, I've told you. Yeah. Yeah, it's Leela.
0: Oh, that's it, yes, yeah.
1: And then the doctor makes up some cod scientific explanation. Oh, he he was in a coma, he woke up, he went for a walk, he drowned. That's no. <laughs> all
0: very odd. That
1: is odd. No, I couldn't figure that out for a while. And, well, she challenges him. She said, Why did you tell him? Why didn't you tell him the truth? And the doctor says, Because I don't know the truth.
0: Oh, you see, that's a beautiful line itself, isn't well,
1: it? Well, I'm not saying I'm quoting it verbatim, yeah, but yeah. that's the gist of, of what he says. Because yeah. I, why did you lie? Because I don't know the truth. And the other thing is, Leela described, is it. Yes, it's something about, again, it's about skin sale and the diamonds. I think that um, the doctor fails to tell her that he's died scrabbling around searching for the it's for the diamonds. He, yes. She says something about him having an honourable death or something. I, I don't remember the exact yes. the exact wording. Say that's, I think he said... It, it sort something. of preserves the myth of the man. Yes,
0: he said there's no way for a man to be remembered, something like that. Yes, yes, yes. and it's a
1: lovely little moment. It is. It's lovely. Because he, he sweeps under the carpet this man's huge failing.
0: Yes, yeah.
1: It's and, very and interesting actually. allows leader only to think well, perhaps not to think well of him, but at least not to go into detail on the circumstances of his death.
0: Yes, yeah it's interesting. do you know that it's it's really rather
1: wretched, isn't it, this story, considering mm-hmm. um considering it was a filler, uh, an emergency
0: yeah, yeah. There are
1: layers, and I think we're peeling more and more and more layers off as we go along.
0: Well, it's interesting because um, once again, I mean, this is the really interesting thing about talking about these um, these Doctor Who's is that um, as we've done so many times, you know, with each other and with other guests, we we somebody spots something which somebody else hasn't, and then mm. it gives you a, a greater insight into it. And mm. uh, you know, I think we've both. Turned around each other's scores sometimes because we've we've made <laughs> each other go. Oh, actually, that's, that's... She
1: quite like that. Yeah, yeah,
0: yeah that's right. Actually, and, it was a
1: nice character touch. Or yeah. I didn't notice that.
0: Yeah, absolutely. And um, I, I feel there's one thing. Um, I know we get near the hour mark now. Right. so we're going to have to. We, so you see, we've really gone for this story, haven't we? I can we?
1: think. I can think of a couple of things that we must do before the end. But absolutely. After...
0: Well, but could I ask what the For the first one, could I ask you, because I know you're you're, you're a bit of an aficionado with this, the technical presentation of the
1: audio Oh, yes, that's one of the things that I was going to say we need to do, because we do this every time. Yes, yeah. My note says that the soundscape was largely proportionate on this audio, except twice. Right. And the, the two occasions are when Vince's fistful of fivers received as a bribe go up in flames of a mighty whoosh, more appropriate to the towering inferno. <laughs> yes. so that was note one. And the second one was the rocket launch on a tripod.
0: Oh.
1: Which is not the same as the early Shmurly. No, no. Sadly, it was, they, they got that rocket launch and it just, well, oh. But those were the two brief moments that I felt were probably overdone. But I would say that the soundscape was very well done on this audio oh. and i think the music was very good on this audio as well i think it accented bits of tension and 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 excitement in the story very 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 well well you've um you,
0: you, you've said that much more eloquently than me in my notes i've got um that the background sound effects are very appropriate and at the right mm-hmm. levels. I've got, but I agree with you about those two little instances. Yeah, it, fire. it had a
1: right old, uh, right old
0: crackling away. <laughs> That's a real
1: point. old bonfire he gets
0: going it there. It was, yeah, because it's interesting because the crackling of the rooten with that electrical spark that was fine, wasn't it? That wasn't. Yes, that was them. all good. Didn't yeah, it?
1: yeah. And Louise Jameson's interpretation of. The Routon, I've come to realise by looking at the DVD, is actually far more in keeping with the voice that Terence Dix wanted for the monster. He wanted this shrill, yes. squeaky, high-pitched, obviously alien delivery, so yes. that bit of treatment to her voice seems wholly appropriate yes, based absolutely. on the writer's view. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. I mean, the, the other thing I truly want to cut to cover because I think it's very important, is the cover Oh of the audio. Yes, yes. I mean, isn't it brilliant? Oh,
0: the cover for this. I remember getting the first edition Target book. Do you say March 78? I think I might have had it for my 10th birthday. Mm-hmm. Um, mm. And I treasured this cover. It is so beautifully mm. done, isn't it?
1: Mm. It's by Jeff Cummings, who did a couple of the covers around that time and features Tom Baker with the bowler hat yes, which he picks up during the story Yeah. and also with a coil of rope which I don't actually remember him using because the one time he could do with a coil of rope is when he's hanging out the lighthouse window Yeah, <laughs> he doesn't seem to have one then no, when he's picking off the alien's aerial that's a little dramatic touch that's been added maybe a little uh, I don't know but yeah. there is a very famous publicity shot from this um, story where he is holding a coil of rope. Oh, right. Just love, I just love everything about this murky cover. Yeah. The intensity of the look of the doctor's face. Oh, it's beautifully captured, isn't it? And his curls the, are
0: at their best, there, aren't they? They're I, really.
1: I just think it's wonderful, this cover. Yeah.
0: It re- um, well, it's the atmospheric, because you can see that mist is coming over the doctor, but his oh, face yeah. is beautifully lit. Isn't it? It's so well composed, isn't it?
1: It's really, really good. Mm-hmm. And I don't usually praise a cover to The Skies unless it's by Chris Achilles. Yes, yeah. But, me, uh, me, I'm going to make an exception here. I love it. Uh,
0: me too. I love it. it. Do you know, I think for the cover, we can definitely... Well, I'm going to give it 10 out of 10. It's, it's, a, <laughs> it's a beauty of a cover. And I don't mm-hmm. think, David, when we went to the, um, the Target cover... Yeah, the mis- comic... Yeah, yeah well, I don't think this one was on display, was it? No, I don't
1: believe it was. No. Another Jeff coming cover, which was Tomb of the Cybermen. Oh, yes, was there, yeah. display, and that's the famous one with the ricket, because an invasion Cyberman head is used. Oh, yes. Instead of the Tomb one. That's
0: right, yeah, yeah. but
1: That, that would cause a Twitter meltdown if that happened in the modern world. <laughs> it would, wouldn't it? It's the wrong type of Cyberman. <laughs> It
0: would absolutely, but I mean the 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 cover is is fabulous. I love the cover for it. it's so atmospheric and so. Uh, but also, I just wanted to get in a couple of bits that I. Said, oh yes, by all means. Um, with with the story as well, I said I I love the prologue with the and by the way, the poem the 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 mm. genuine poem is by Wil Wilfred Wilson Gibson,
1: who right.
0: lived until eighteen seventy eight till nineteen sixty two. And it's the ballad of Flan and Isle
1: flan and Isle, so, that's right,
0: yeah, so it's um it's it's beautifully uh, you can see where the inspiration came from there, mm-hmm. but also, I felt the beginning of this story, all the classic horror motifs are there, aren't they, mm-hmm. and you've also got the potent uh, Sorry, I've got this word wrong, the portent of the light in the sky, the bad mm-hmm. omens coming from there, it's just all of these. Symbols oh, which are short, true. yeah, they just short well, and to uh, get you. About,
1: Yes, I mean thinking about it, Time Warrior starts in exactly the same fashion.
0: It does with Link's
1: ship going across the sky.
0: Yeah, yeah, it That's does.
1: Things start to really go wrong when he lands. Yeah, absolutely, so, and that, so it does resonate yeah. very strongly. There are very clear links. Yes, yeah, yes. <laughs> I mean, to an extent, they're used less effectively. The Halley's Comet in Attack of the Cybermen, didn't they? Which oh, is also dear. just a portent yeah. of impending problems. Yeah, sorry, I've
0: given a little bit away of what I think of the Attack of the Cybermen. When is that with
1: the... <laughs> all right. well, we'll park that, that but I yeah. understand what you say, the, the meteor. All right, Spearhead yeah. from Space, then, that starts with meteors flying as well. It does indeed. Oh, all oh, Spearhead from Space. Yeah. It would be not to love Spearhead from Space. oh
0: be ahead from speed we've got to do that one soon um so david could i ask because we have got a couple of quick things we want to say for example Mm. we we we'll go on to a minute we have a we have a competition winner
1: oh we've got a competition brilliant yeah but just before we do that shall we score um yes we must score this but i want to hear your score first
0: right i i don't know where i'm caught up in the whole thing I love the Target novelization, I love the T V serial and I absolutely thoroughly recommend this audio version by Louise um mm-hmm. with Louise Jameson narrating it. Soundscape is lovely, that that boil that mm-hmm. electric boiler going in the background with this deep throb It mm-hmm. adds that real tension to it. And the mm-hmm. music, which you you mentioned already, you know, has said it, it really gives that um flavor I
1: it heightens moments of tension and it, it underscores moments of drama. Oh, beautifully
0: put. It really does. Isn't it? It's really right, isn't it the music? It, mm. it it doesn't sound like stock music that they've just no. pulled out from somewhere. It's it's right, you know.
1: It is right.
0: Um, oh, I don't know if I'm going too over the top, but I mm. I'm going to give it I'm going to give it 9.5 out of 10.
1: <gasps> <laughs> oh. Yeah. <laughs> That
0: makes it near perfect. It does make it near perfect. You know, if you hadn't mentioned those plot holes (laughs) earlier, I might have gone all the way with it. I
1: understand. I understand where you're coming from on that. Yeah. I mean, my instinct was to give it 8.5 for very similar reasons to yours, because I think we gave Pirate Planet. Did we give that 9.5 or did we give it 10? I, th- seems like a time I ago, think we gave it nine we? That. Gave it nine point five. Okay. So yeah. it's up there. And I think I think this is a different kind of audio. Oh, completely. But yeah. do you know what? I'm I'm going to I'm going to revise my score based on the strength of your convictions in this product. Oh
0: yeah.
1: And I'm gonna up my eight point five. I'm gonna up it to nine. Oh How about that? That is, that's a very I think this, f- this set is very, very worth owning. I think it's a good yeah. addition. Yes. To, any, to who fans audio collection so yes nine out of ten from me
0: oh that's fabulous! you can great it's been really enjoyable the these last two ones were really enjoyable um but like you say vastly different each of these mm-hmm. vastly different but we're well, talking of owning it we're going to go to the competition ah, section the competition. now yes now do you want to um well, have, we've, we've got a copy, a brand new copy of this from courtesy mm. of BBC Audio to give away again, haven't we?
1: Right, yes, we have. Now, we did have,
0: I'll just say, we had a winner from um, our our last competition for the Pirate Planet. The winner is Matthew Whitfield, who lives in America, and he mm. sent us a lovely email and he got the character of Mr Fibberly absolutely right. The question was mm. answered. So... He is getting a brand new... A brand he, new CD set. A brand new of, CD set, yes. Of, of to Pirate him, Planet. Of the Pirate Planet. That's on his way mm. to him. Now, we've got a brand new set, as you say, of The Horror of Fang Rock. We so, have. So, David, I'm not putting you on the spot. I'm hoping right, you've, right. You've, you've prepared a question. Right. So,
1: I can think of a question for you. Okay. okay. The character in The Horror of Fang Rock... The character of Reuben and also the Root and Voice, is played by an actor called Colin Douglas. But Colin Douglas appears in another Doctor Who story, a second Doctor Doctor Who story. It's one we all know, and I'm going to ask the question, Colin Douglas plays a character called Donald Bruce, in which doctor who story wow that's
0: a really good question that's a that's a proper doctor who fan question because mm. of
1: that. i think we'll all have heard of the story though
0: yeah well, it, well we, we won't we won't push too much on that but that's a lovely question <laughs> but mm. and please you know if you um have we got a, a time limit or anything on this or have we uh... I,
1: I think we should do i think we should set a date and then people should send you the emails and then we should pick one at random. Brilliant. I think that would be would Brilliant. be a good way to do this. What
0: what date should we set, David? This is going to be out... In the, in well,
1: we're the, 1st of April today, aren't we?
0: And this is going to be out by the 2nd.
1: So. Right, so shall we give people two weeks? Yes. That is that reasonable?
0: Should we say the 15th of April too?
1: Which I think will be the start of Doctor Who. So what this a, would be... The new, the next series, won't it? What a coincidence! It will be indeed. So there you are. The cut-off time is before Doctor Who, just before Doctor Who finishes transmission. How about that?
0: Fabulous! That's great. <laughs> and perhaps mentioning on that 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 real coincidence there, we could say um, that we are going to be. Reviewing the episodes as they come out. Mm. And yes, we are. We're gonna do when we gonna do. Are we gonna do, do it the day after David? Should we get them out the day We'll after? do it as soon as we possibly can. And please send those um, answers out to Doctor Who on Target at Gmail dot com. And David, could you let us know um, which one are we going to tackle
1: next? Right. Well, I've just asked a question about a Patrick Troughton story. And we had a recent audio release of a story called The Space Pirates read by Terry Malloy. Oh, we did, yeah. So how about we do that?
0: That sounds fabulous. That sounds great. I, I re- we haven't done a patch of for a while, have we, I don't think. Of course, but, it's
1: by our favourite author, Terence Dix. Oh. The original story is by Robert Holmes.
0: Oh, this th- great
1: pedigree. We have to do it. It's got to be done. It's
0: got to be done. <laughs> and we, we, will we be watching our secret um, video version of it that we've got, or...
1: I don't know if I can find it. I think it went behind the back of the sofa.
0: Oh, that, no, that one that, that Dick Fiddy gave you. behind, yeah. Oh,
1: yeah. no. That's, <laughs> uh, <laughs> I don't know if we start. If any- nothing else, we can at least watch episode two. Yes, that would be great. That would be, uh, I'll have to watch that before bed tonight. Sorry, I shouldn't say that, honestly. Um, <laughs> right.
0: Well, David, it's been really, really interesting talking about this one. Um <laughs> It's been it's been it's been a great story. Um and as I say, um thank you again to Matthew Whitfield for writing some lovely comments about our podcast. Please mm. anybody you know, please write in with feedback. It's always really nice to get. And of course, because we're going to be reviewing the Doctor Who stories that are coming up, there'll be a little uh, space for you to send in what you think of uh, the new Doctor Who episodes as they're coming out. Um, before we record them. So please feel free to send us and perhaps we could um, read those out or if you like, send us an audio um, recording and we can try and fit those in. That would be okay, David, wouldn't it? Yes, absolutely. Oh, fabulous. Well, thanks again, David, for for, for joining me and um, it's been absolutely great and we look forward to reading and listening to The Space Pirates for our next episode. Thank you, David, and goodbye. Please tweet us at Doctor Who on Target, that's DR Who on Target, or email us at Doctor Who on target at gmail.com. That's the end of this episode, and I would like to thank BBC Audio and Penguin Random House for kindly supplying us with preview copies, and to Smerin's Anti Social Club for the use of their version of the Doctor Who theme, tune. The biggest thank you goes to you, our listeners.